Welcome to this Forthright Radio for December 24th, 2021. I'm Joy Claire. We have a very full show for you today. With us for the full hour is University of Wisconsin Harrington Professor of History, Alfred McCoy. He was our guest in 2017 when his book, In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power, came out. That archived interview can be heard on our website, forthright.media. Fifty years ago, the publication of his book, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, led to his testifying before the Senate Committee on Appropriations Foreign Operations Subcommittee in June of 1972. His research, including traveling to Hmong villages in Laos, revealed that the Central Intelligence Agency was knowingly involved in the production of heroin in the Golden Triangle of Burma, Thailand, and Laos. The CIA tried to block its publication, but it has been translated into nine foreign languages with three English editions and is regarded as the classic work on global drug traffic. He has a new book just out, published by Haymarket Books, titled To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. In it, he explores the interplay of three factors, sovereignty, human rights, and energy, in shaping the succession of empires and their global systems from the Black Death of 1350 through the coming climate crisis of 2050. We spoke with Alfred McCoy on the winter solstice, December 21, 2021. Welcome back to Forthright Radio, Professor Alfred McCoy. Thank you for joining us again. Happy to be here. You write in To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change, quote, since the start of the age of exploration in the 15th century, some 90 empires, major and minor, have come and gone. In those same 500 years, however, there have been just three world orders, all arising in the West, the Iberian Age after 1494, the British Imperial Era from 1815, and the Washington World System from 1945 to perhaps something like 2030. That's the end of the quote. What do you mean by world order, and how is it different from empire? Good question. Empires, of course, have a kind of territorial and political specificity. They have boundaries. They have administrators and they have armies that will fight to defend them. So they're powerful and they're palpable. World orders are something much more pervasive, much more persistent, but much less palpable. Empires we know. So what are world orders? Well, world orders are are a system of almost civilization that are sometimes created by the most powerful empires. World orders govern the languages people speak, the laws that they obey, and the way that they worship and even play. The games people play are created by the most powerful of world orders, the most pervasive world orders. And so in our own time, the United States did two things when it achieved unprecedented global power at the end of World War II. In the late 1940s, the United States had half the world's industrial capacity. It had by far the world's most powerful military. It had the only nuclear weapons. And at this peak of imperial power, the United States created self-consciously a new world order, which was founded in the UN. So if empires represent power, world orders represent, if you will, principle. And that world order of the United States at the UN was founded on two principles, the idea of, first of all, universal human rights, and second of all, every human being or every human community had the right to be in their own nation and colonies and were no longer acceptable. And those new nations would all have inviolable national sovereignty. And this world order was undergirded by a rule of law, international law, international legal principles, treaties and the like, which we regard as kind of international contracts, and then infused with a pervasive spirit of international cooperation. So the question we're facing now, and I think by the end of this decade, by 2030, is clearly U.S. global power is fading. The power side of the equation, the duality is fading. The question we're facing now is, will the principal side, will this international world order survive? 
And that's an important question because although the United States was, if you will, the midwife of that world order, that was the culmination of 500 years of some of the most tragic of human history, slavery, wars, and the rest. And it would be a great tragedy if that international order, that world order were to fade along with U.S. global power. Your book is a wonderful compilation of those 500 years and the duality, as you put it, between power and principle. As we enter the third year of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus pandemic, and as yet another even more highly transmissible variant, the Omicron, is doubling at the rate of 1.5 to 3 days, Many people are experiencing what is being called COVID fatigue. I found your writing about the Black Death, which you point out went on intermittently for a hundred years to put our situation into perspective. Tell us about that and what it led to. First of all, you have to make a distinction between an epidemic or a pandemic on the one hand and a catastrophe. Pandemics are a constant in human history. Since the continent started coming into contact in the 12th century, we've had pandemics. And only occasionally do they rise to the level of becoming catastrophic. And the Black Death was just that. When it started in roughly 1350, it migrated from China across the steppes of Central Asia via the powerful Mongol Empire. It reached Europe in the space of little more than about five years. It killed 60% of the population of Europe. We believe that it killed a comparable percentage of China's population. And more importantly, it devastated the Mongol Empire because the Black Death was most intense in Central Asia. And the Mongol Empire was enormously powerful. It, they ran China, and their power stretched across the whole of the Eurasian landmass right to the Danube River in Eastern Europe. That empire had simply disappeared. And that was catastrophic of world historical importance. It was so devastating that for the, literally for the first time in a thousand years, Europe was freed from the incessant invasion of what they called the barbarians, the horsemen riding out of the steppes of Central Asia to conquer Europe. This process has been going on for a thousand years. And suddenly, with the Black Death and the devastation of not only the Mongol Empire, but the population of Central Asia, that threat ended for Europe. And Europe then, for the first time, had the freedom to turn to the West and begin the process of exploration. And that process of exploration by Spain and Portugal constructed a global system of imperial power. And it also created a world order grounded in the idea that Christian nations had the right to subjugate pagans and to place them, as the papacy put it, into perpetual slavery. And that slave trade and the massacres in the Americas were so utterly horrific, completely destroyed the indigenous population of the Caribbean, reduced the population of Mexico from something like 20 or 25 million people to a little more than a million people. I mean, it was one of the greatest demographic disasters in human history after the Black Death. And it was so bad that the Spanish missionary friars, particularly the Dominicans who witnessed it firsthand, began to attack those excesses. And they developed, over the span of the century that followed, the foundation for a doctrine of universal human rights. The idea that all human beings, Christian and pagan alike, were all humans and all had inalienable rights. And that duality started right then. That system of global power lasted for 300 years. The Iberian world order was strong enough to survive the fading of imperial power by Spain and Portugal itself, and it died in kind of the next sustained cataclysm, which were the Napoleonic Wars that ravaged and roiled Europe for 20 years and killed something on the order of 6 million people. And that was sufficient along with the rise of the British Empire, a new form of energy. That's another thing that all world orders have. They have a principle of human rights. They have a definition of, of sovereignty. And the third thing they have is a form of energy. And the energy that drove the Iberian world order was twofold. Wind power, which powered the sails and made the European mariners masters of the oceans, made the middle passage of the slave trade possible. And then the other form of energy that the Iberian Age created was they maximize the energy potential of the human body by massing slaves in tropical plantations. In the period before Europe expanded, European agriculture was in a sustained decline. The Black Death eliminated the large labor forces on the manors of Europe. And Europe's land was then worked by individual yeoman farmers. Their energy output was decided to live, but first of all, they could only work half the year because it's a temperate climate with a long dead season in the, in the winter. 
by moving commercial agriculture to the tropics, suddenly the growing season moved to 12 months. Instead of individual yeoman farmers, you could have plantations worked by up to several hundred slaves. And if individual yeoman farmers naturally are going to pace themselves, kind of monitor their energy output, not, not push themselves to the, the brink of exhaustion, slaves were driven by club and lash to work beyond the limits of human endurance. So the death rate on the plantations was enormous. And so this cruel system maximized the energy output of the human body. And that's the reason why slave plantations persisted for 400 years, far longer than almost any other form of economic activity, because they were so persistently profitable. And in the rise of the British world order, one of the things that distinguished it from the Iberian age was that its energy was shifting away from wind and muscle power to coal-fired steam engines. First, the big engines that James Watt invented in the 1780s that drove factories, particularly textile mills and mines, but then small mobile steam engines that drove railroads and then ships, and then on plantations, the crushing and boiling of cane to extract the sugar from the juice was done no longer by slaves or animals, but was now being done by steam engines, and factories are all driven by steam engines. There was a transformation of the energy source and Britain then was able to commit itself, starting in 1815, to the extirpation of slavery. And Britain, for the better part of 80 years, spent 2% of its gross national product and committed its most powerful military instrument, the Royal Navy, to the extirpation of the transatlantic slave trade. And as a result of that massive effort by the world's most powerful empire and by a civil war in the United States that killed 700,000 people, slavery was abolished by the last decades of the 19th century. And, of course, that British world order began releasing emissions into the atmosphere. And in 1896, a Swedish Nobel Prize-winning physicist named Cervantes Arrhenius published an article in which he, he did calculations for months with you know, basically paper and pencil. And he calculated that the CO2 emissions kept going, that the temperature in the Arctic could increase as much as 9 degrees centigrade. And that was in 1896. So we've known about global warming from fossil fuel emissions for about 125 years now. We were talking about the labor shortages due to the Black Death. And in Northern Europe, you write that that precipitated a shift from the feudal system of serfdom to free wage labor. That's in Northern Europe. But you also write that in the Mediterranean, they then moved to the captive labor, which is kind of shorthand for slaves. But originally, initially, the slaves were from Greece and the Crimea in primarily Tuscany and Catalonia. These small kingdoms, starting with Portugal, through their inventions with wind and stuff that you were saying about and sailing, explored the world and very strategically set up forts and things would you talk about how first the Portuguese, and then we can go on to the other empires, went about with the geopolitics of their time to set up their empires? There were really three key artifacts that transformed Portugal from one of the poorest nations of Europe, population of about a million people, into the first great global hegemon. The first, of course, was the Portuguese sailing ship, the Caravel, or the Caravela, the Armada, the armed caravel sailing ship. And this had two important innovations. Up to this point, sailing ships in the Mediterranean used rectangular sails, which were very effective for sailing before the wind. But if you need to tack into the wind, rectangular sails are very inefficient. The caravel had a triangular sail, usually in the rear. And this became the jib later on in sailing ships. And this allowed ships to tack into the wind. So that simple invention made the Portuguese not the victim of the winds, but the master of the winds. They could go anywhere. The second thing the Portuguese did was that they developed very sophisticated shipboard artillery. In the Mediterranean, they put massive guns on the bows of ships called bombards, and they would generally fire one massive shot. What the Portuguese did is they used smaller guns. They put them along the length of the ship so they could fire broadsides. And the combination of the shipborne artillery and the Portuguese were the finest gunners in the world in the 16th century. The combination of the shipboard artillery and the sailing set meant that the, the Portuguese caravel was master of the oceans. 
When they sailed to Asia, and they did this in several transformational battles, they could sail through massive Asian fleets. And instead of grappling with the ship and and fighting hand-to-hand, they could simply sail through the rival fleet, firing broadsides and sinking ships. Or they could stand offshore, as they did, and they could destroy the walls of a city or damage the city, and then they could land and conquer the city. So that, that made them agile conquerors. The second thing they developed was something called the feitoria, the armed port. So the Portuguese were not a powerful land empire. That was later on the Spanish in Latin America. The Portuguese built about 50 of these feitorias, these little enclaves, sited strategically in the sea lanes, and that allowed them to dominate the commerce, ban trade by powers they found unacceptable, tax merchants, and allow their own ships to dominate the trade. And they had these agile networks. So if a fort were attacked, they could simply retreat inside the walls and hold out. And if the attack was sustained, then the Portuguese ships could arrive from another of their feitorias and evacuate the forces under attack and allow them to survive and then rebuild. So it was a very supple and agile system of 50 feitorias stretching from the coast of Brazil all the way to the Spice Islands of modern-day Indonesia, basically halfway around the world. An extraordinary network. Coast of Brazil, down the coast of Africa, along the coast of India, all the way through Southeast Asia, up as far as Macau, near present-day Hong Kong. Extraordinary agile network. The other thing, of course, the other artifact, beyond the, the sailing ship and the fortified port, was, of course, the slave plantation. And the Spanish developed those in the 15th century on the islands in the Atlantic off the coast of Africa. First Madeira and then Sao Tome. And they created basically the modern slave plantation, a large block of land, 100 hectares or more, a large force of slaves, 100, 200, 300 slaves, water-powered mills to crush the cane, and then the production of sugarcane. That form of slave sugar plantation spread then to Portuguese Brazil, to the Caribbean, and it became the source of enormous profits and power. And it was really the slave plantation that required the Middle Passage. And between 1441 and about 1860, the transport of 12 million Africans across the Atlantic Ocean to the plantations of Brazil, the Caribbean, and then the southern part of what became the United States. And that traffic persisted for 400 years. The combination of just those three simple artifacts turned the Portuguese into a great global power. So they built the first world order and the first global empire. We're used to the history of the United States and the relationship with slavery. And there was more of a capitalist investment in slave approach, whereas the Iberian approach was... Just work the slaves to death. The life expectancy, as you said, was seven years. They actually had in their business plans how many they had to renew each year. It just seemed like a very different approach. Bad as slavery was in the United States, this was just unbelievable. And it brings up the issue of human rights and that they did not really believe that Africans were humans. The Iberian world order was grounded in the idea of Christendom, that the Christian community of Europe was the moral community, that Christians had souls and would be saved, and all the rest of the world were pagans. And as Prince Henry the Navigator began exploring down the coast of Africa, and in 1441, one of his ships came back, a ship sent to bring gold, came back with another form of enormous profit, first African slaves captive and brought into Europe. And as Prince Henry began to extend his reach down the coast of Africa and expand the number of slaves he was bringing to Europe, which commanded high value in Europe initially because of the labor deficit from the Black Death, he was very skillful. He lobbied the Vatican, and he got papal bulls, papal decrees, granting Portugal the right to conquer all lands beyond Europe. And in multiple papal decrees, they used the same language, to place the peoples in the lands they conquered into perpetual slavery. I mean, that was given them by the Vatican. And that drove the Portuguese expansion down the coast of Africa, allowing them to develop the slave trade. And then as Spain conquered the Americas and slaughtered the indigenous populations of the Caribbean, and were also introducing plantations at that time, they needed a labor substitute. And so they began importing slaves from Africa, initially in collaboration with the Portuguese and then on their own. 
And that developed the whole slave trade and the dominant doctrine that basically slaves were not Christian, therefore were essentially not human. And the slaughters, and this is extraordinary, the slaughters were so horrific and they were witnessed firsthand by Spanish missionaries who often accompanied the Spanish, the very famous missionary Bartolome de las Casas, who started himself as a colonist who had his own slaves, suddenly realized the immorality of it all. And he'd witnessed the slaughters during the Spanish conquest of Cuba, which he participated in. And he began, first of all, writing in great detail about the slaughters. And towards the end of his life, after many publications, he came to a realization that all human beings were the same, that we were all the children of the Creator, and we all had human rights. And therefore, to put somebody in bondage or slavery was fundamentally wrong. And Bartolome de las Casas and other members of the Dominican Order started a debate, and that debate over the nature of human rights developed and deepened, and it spread to the Protestant nations during the Protestant Reformation, and it inspired in the late 18th century, the time when Britain had become the dominant power in the slave trade, carrying well over half the slaves across the Atlantic. Britain's dominance of the trade sparked a Protestant religious reaction, particularly in what were called the dissenting churches, the Quakers, the Methodists, and then Anglican evangelicals. And they launched a sustained campaign in the late 18th century that went on for 30 years campaigning against the slave trade. At one point, in a population of just 10 million, over a million Britons signed petitions to Parliament demanding an end to the slave trade. It also spread to the United States through the Quakers as well because there was a transatlantic dialogue among the Quakers over the slave trade. That made Philadelphia, of course, the epicenter, which was the basically uh, that's where the Quakers were quite influential. It was the original colony in the United States. Philadelphia became the, the center of the abolitionist movement in the United States through this transatlantic dialogue. And that produced first in 1807, the British Parliament banned the slave trade. Eight years later, at the treaty that ended the Napoleonic Wars, the so-called Congress of Vienna, Article 15 of that treaty condemns the slave trade. It's the first international statement against the slave trade. Condemns it as absolutely immoral and says that it must be abolished. And that roughly in 1807 as well, the United States, as a result of this early abolitionist movement, the United States banned the importation of slaves into the United States. The federal government could do that under the U.S. Constitution. And that's why As you mentioned earlier, American slave owners had to be more humane in their treatment of slaves. There was smuggling that was taking place, but it really dropped away. And so in order to get slaves, plantations had to have natural reproduction. They had to protect the lives of their slaves. They had to have families that would give birth and raise children. And so that meant that slavery in the United States became, and I use the word guardingly, at least relatively more humane than the complete exploitation of the Brazilian and the Caribbean trade, which was essentially working the slaves to death. We're speaking with Professor Alfred McCoy. His latest book is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. We're emphasizing that it's only by degrees that it was more humane as experienced in the southern United States slavery. Your book is very detailed. You go into also when the Dutch were very briefly a world power, but they were nonetheless. But I want to get to closer to the present day. So if there are any quick aspects of the Dutch innovations, because there were many, that you want to tell us about before we go on to the British during the Age of Revolutions, please share that with us now. The major Dutch innovation in the, in the business of empire was to apply capitalism to colonial exploration. So the world's first major corporation, right, uh, that had the had shareholders and that had a legal persona separate and apart from an individual like a monarch, was the Dutch East India Company. And it conquered modern-day Indonesia. It established a settlement in modern-day South Africa. It also contended for control over the Atlantic slave trade, and the Dutch had islands that they colonized in the Caribbean and also in the northern coast of Latin America. The Dutch created this very powerful form of joint stock companies that conducted and operated colonies. And after 1600, after the Dutch innovation, you got then the British East India Company, the French East India Company, and then a a whole host of companies like, everyone knows the Hudson Bay Company, 
the Massachusetts Bay Colony, that was a joint stock company. Basically, exploration in the 17th and 18th centuries, all the way, in fact, to the very end of the 18th century, for the better part of 300 years, followed this capitalist format. And that meant that the plantation, which was the most profitable artifact, the most profitable element of all these enterprises, persisted and expanded. There was a very famous study done of slavery in the United States called Time on the Cross. And one of the most revealing statistics they came up with, even as late as the 1820s and 1830s, after slave plantations had been going for nearly four centuries, southern slave labor by African Americans was 35% more efficient than northern family farming. The slave plantation, its profitability and its viability as an economic instrument never ended. It had to be killed. It had to be killed by the slaughter of the American Civil War and by the coercion of the Royal Navy, the British Royal Navy's very violent campaign against slavery in the North Atlantic. The British lost 15,000 sailors fighting the slave trade, and they expended 2% of their gross domestic product for decades in pursuit of this effort. That's a great segue into the time the British rise as the world empire, and You discuss two different forms of this, the informal empire and then the high imperialism, and you give a wonderful example of the informal empire dealing with their efforts to stop the transatlantic slave trade. Very briefly, share with us the incident that happened in Brazil, where basically five British men prevented a slave ship from unloading in Brazil. Oh, that's right, yes. First of all, the most famous quote about it was the British Foreign Secretary, George Canning, said in 1824, as Latin America was in this great upheaval of national revolutions, the liberators of Latin America, casting off centuries of Spanish rule. And the British Foreign Secretary said, Latin America is free, and unless we are mistaken, she shall be ours. So how can you have a continent being free and yet being under British rule? And the way of doing that was informal empire. And so there was an incident in which the British, during their campaign against the slave trade, seized a ship on the high seas, a Brazilian ship that was sailing, and the ship looked suspicious. The Royal Navy pursued it, they boarded it, and they found hundreds of slaves almost starving to death beneath the decks. And they took it to the modern-day port of Salvador to provision it because there weren't adequate provisions to make the crossing back to the Atlantic to free the slaves in Sierra Leone, the British colony. And so they called it the Port of San Salvador. And the slave traders, who were very powerful men on the Brazilian coast, hired 80 men, hard guys, tough guys, and they rowed out towards the ship in order to kill the British crew and seize the ship and and then sell the slaves. And the British repelled them, killing three of the attackers. And the combination of the British ambassador, the British consul, Two brothers that operated a kind of a ship chandlery, a provisioning and import-export firm in Salvador, all got together and they defied the Brazilian government, the Brazilian governor of the province, and they sent the ship on its way. And so from that, you could see how in a city of 100,000, a major city on the coast of Brazil, the British could operate in absolute defiance of the authority of the Brazilian officials. And with their penumbra of the Royal Navy casting power over the coasts of Brazil, strategically sighted merchants in the city, a couple of diplomats, an ambassador and a consul. And those five people basically integrated a city of 100,000 people in a, a vital plantation sector still run by slaves into the British world economy. And that was how informal empire operated. Now, that gave way around 1880 to formal empire. By 1900, the world had 146 colonies that represented 40% of the land mass of the world and over 30% over one-third of humanity were living in colonies by 1900. And that was direct colonial rule. And it's that direct colonial rule that is the other side of the British duality. On the one hand, you had the British principle, the idea that all human beings were equal, that the slave trade was immoral. And Britain established the morality and legitimacy of its global order through that historic campaign against slavery that ran for the better part of 80 years. As soon as that campaign came to an end, in around 1880, that's when the second phase of British imperial rule started, and they started creating all these colonies. And those colonies ran through a modified form of coerced labor called corvée labor. And so in, let's say, Portuguese Angola or Belgian Congo, 
every adult had to work, usually it was adult males, but sometimes it was women as well, had to work 26 days a year free. Well, that represented about 20% of the working lives of African farmers. And all farmers are struggling to survive. And they use every waking minute to work their lands and do their business. Losing 20% of your labor was a huge, huge imposition. And as imperialism spread and these colonies proliferated, they all used this modified form of coerced labor. And so there was this duality to the British imperial age. On the one hand, you had the principle of free trade, of human freedom, of ending slavery. On the other hand, you had the power side colonial rule and extraction of coerced labor, non-paid coerced labor from populations around the world. And that system, of course, came to an end during the great devastation of World War II that killed over 70 million people, ravaged the world's cities. And it's out of that catastrophe that the persistent, pervasive British world order came to an end and the American world order was formed which, of course, had its own kind of duality that we can talk about. And you write that the British, and I suppose the Dutch actually before them, replaced religious discrimination with how awful you can be to other people with a racial hierarchy. We won't go into that. I think that's pretty self-evident. We also won't go into the specifics of the Berlin Conference, which literally cut up an entire continent of Africa and just distributed it to the European powers. Uh, You go into that, and it's very illuminating, Professor McCoy. But I want to move on to the geopolitics of, very briefly, World War I, but to get to World War II and what happened in post-World War II, because that's important to get us to where we are today. You mentioned the word geopolitics. That's another major theme in the book. Geopolitics is a, a word that, if you read the New York Times or any of the informed kind of commentary in the media, this word gets kicked around a lot. People in Washington, D.C. use it. It's a slippery and elusive concept. And very few people and very few leaders have the skill to actually conceptualize the entire world and to transform the complexities of people and products and armies and boundaries and nations into counters that they can actually maneuver and manipulate. One thing I I learned from this sweep through five and six centuries of imperial history was that Although you move from Portugal to Spain to Holland to Britain to the United States and now China, this incredible range of very different kinds of nations and leaders, all of them shared one thing in common. All of them struggled to dominate the Eurasian landmass. Okay, that's Europe and Asia, which are actually a single landmass, really a single continent that we should call Eurasia. And all of them did that, and this is the epicenter of world power. In 1904, the father of modern geopolitics, a British geographer named Sir Halford Mackinder, came up with the concept of the world island. And in America, all of us go to school, and there's always a map of the world sitting in our schoolroom, usually middle school, high school, in our social studies. We've got a map of the world, and up there, it's always the same. There's North America and then South America, and then there are these two blobs on either side of the map which are Eurasia cut in half, okay? That's not actually how the world looks, okay? So Mackinder redrew the world in the way that it actually is, and he drew the world so that the three continents were actually joined, Europe, Asia, and Africa, formed the kind of unitary mass that he called the world island. Then he showed these lesser outlying islands like Greenland, Australia, Iceland, North America, South America. And that's true. Even today... Eurasia is home to 70% of the world's population and more than 70% of the world's productivity. So every world power over the past 500 years has had to dominate Eurasia as the epicenter of world power. And when America emerged from the, the rubble of World War II and became the world's greatest power, the greatest empire in world history, America's world power was founded on dominance over Eurasia. And the United States was the first nation the first empire in a thousand years to control both axial ends of Eurasia. And we did this through the NATO alliance and massive military bases in Western Europe. That was the Western axial end of Eurasia. And we established NATO in 1949. And two years later, in 1951, we signed four mutual defense pacts 
with Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and Australia. And that gave us a line of islands off the coast of Asia that we call the Pacific Littoral. China calls it the first island chain. And this became our launching pad for controlling the eastern axial end of Eurasia. And then between these two bastions, we laid down circles of steel in the form of the Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic, and the Seventh Fleet in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific. And then our latest band of steel was during the global war on terror that started in 2001. We began eventually constructing what became 60 drone bases stretching from Sicily in the west all the way to Anderson Air Base at Guam in the middle of the Pacific, ringing Eurasia with drone bases. For 70 years, our dominance of Eurasia, containing Russia and China behind the Iron Curtain during the 40 years of the Cold War, but our dominance of Eurasia has been central to U.S. global power. And now China is setting out systematically to break that dominance and in turn to dominate Eurasia itself and thereby become the world's great global hegemon. We can talk about how that happened if you want, Jim. I think it's really important to visit what's going on in Central Asia. Let's start very briefly with Brzezinski's Operation Cyclone in 1979, in which he got $500 million to arouse Islamist militants in what were then the Soviet Central Asia republics. As briefly as you can, talk about that, and we'll go through Reagan and then the debacle that we've just left. Sure. Zygmunt Brzezinski was an American academic. He was a professor of international relations at Columbia University, and he was a Polish aristocrat, emigre. And he became the national security advisor to President Jimmy Carter. And he was national security advisor at the time when the Soviets in 1979 invaded Afghanistan and occupied that country and started their disastrous 10-year attempt to pacify Afghanistan. And Brzezinski, being a student of Mackinder, was mindful of Mackinder's most famous axiom. Mackinder said, he who controls the heartland, by which he meant Central Asia, controls the world island. And he who controls the world island and that's, remember, Africa, Asia, and Europe, okay? He who controls the world island controls the world. And so Brzezinski, who was a a very skillful master of geopolitics, and he was exceptional as a world leader for being able to actually understand geopolitics and to play geopolitics. And so he had this idea under Operation Cyclone that you reference, that he would turn radical Islam into kind of a wedge or a spear and drive that from Pakistan through Afghanistan into what was then called Soviet Central Asia, which are now the Central Asian republics. And by doing that, 3,000 miles to the west, almost magically, through the magic of geopolitics, Eastern Europe, including his homeland Poland, would be free from the Soviet empire. And it worked. The Soviet Union collapsed, Eastern Europe got its freedom, and of course, radical Islam, which had been mobilized for this operation, began proliferating and spreading from Afghanistan around the whole of the Islamic world, from Morocco all the way to the Philippines. And in 1998, Brzezinski was asked about you know, the cost of this operation, and he said very bluntly, he said, what is more important in the history of the world? The liberation of Eastern Europe and the end of the Cold War, or a few stirred-up Muslims like Osama bin Laden? Okay. And then later on, also in the 1990s, when he was retired, Brzezinski was, I think, a better analyst than he was kind of activist, if you will. He wrote a book called The Grand Chessboard, in which he applied Mackinder to global geopolitics. And and Brzezinski, writing in the 1990s, at this absolute peak of U.S. global power, the Soviet Union was gone. We were the world's sole superpower. We were more powerful than any nation had ever been. And Brzezinski said, there are three conditions for the preservation of U.S. global power. One, we must maintain our strategic position in Western Europe. Two, we must prevent any single power from capturing control of Central Asia. And three, we must preserve our bases in the Pacific littoral off the coast of Asia. Okay, you notice that when Brzezinski was talking about American global power, all three of his conditions rested on Eurasia. 
Hence, the logic of that system of power that I described, NATO, the mutual defense treaties, the array of the U.S. naval power, air power, and drones, all of that was meant to control Eurasia. Okay, I'm going to stop you there because we really do have to get to the assertive single entity in the middle space of Eurasia, and that is China rising now. So share with us in the time we have left what has been going on and China's geopolitics. U.S. decline, uh, the decline of U.S. global power, has been something of an informal bipartisan project in Washington, D.C., in other words, America has dug its own grave when it comes to global power. The first thing that happened was at the peak of U.S. global power in around 2000, 2001, the United States was so convinced it was called the end of history, that the world was going to become, every place was going to become rebuilt in America's image of capitalism and liberal democracy. And so the elites in Washington, D.C., both Republican and Democrat, decided that they could admit China to the World Trade Organization as a full trading member, and China would grow into a nice liberal democracy and would play the international game by America's rules. And as a result of its admission to the World Trade Organization, China increased its exports to the United States fivefold in the next 15 years, between 2001 and 2014-15. Moreover, by 2014, China had done something extraordinary. They had accumulated, as a result of becoming the workshop of the world through the World Trade Organization, they had accumulated $4 trillion in foreign exchange. And about that time, in 2013, the president of China, President Xi Jinping, announced something called the Belt and Road Initiative. He stood up in Kazakhstan, in Central Asia, and he proclaimed a bold visionary scheme for laying down an infrastructure stretching from the Atlantic for 6,000 miles across the breadth of Eurasia all the way to the Pacific. And this, he said, would create the greatest market of the world and lift millions of people out of poverty. Xi Jinping in that speech talked about building a belt and road across Eurasia. And that become what's known as the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a $1 trillion project, 10 times the size of the Marshall Plan that the U.S. used to rebuild Europe after World War II. China has invested hundreds of billions of dollars. They're well on their way to expending that $1.2 trillion, laying down a transcontinental grid of pipelines, railroads, and roads under the Belt and Road Initiative from Europe all the way to Asia. Moreover, they've ringed the Eurasian landmass with 40 commercial ports that stretch from around the Indian Ocean, around the coast of Africa, around the coast of Europe. They look rather similar to the design of Portugal's feitorias back in the 16th century, Portugal's network of 50 fortified ports. And then China has also begun modernizing its military, building bases in islands in the South China Sea, opening their first base in Djibouti in the Horn of Africa, and beginning through this military mobilization to slice through those rings of steel that the United States has long laid down around the Eurasian landmass. And China has then begun systematically breaking U.S. control over Eurasia. The other bipartisan disaster was uh, in 2001, after the 9-11 attacks, the United States went to war in the, in the greater Middle East, in Afghanistan and Iraq. We made a disastrous decision to invest $8 trillion in these wars. So at the same time that China was becoming the workshop of the world, accumulating $4 trillion in surplus, using that to modernize their military and their industrial complex and uh, to build this massive Belt and Road Initiative. The United States was investing $8 trillion, moving to the Middle East. Basically, if there was any rationale to the U.S. involvement in the Middle East, it was to get a permanent lock and control over the Middle Eastern oil reserves. So we spent $8 trillion to gain control over oil just at the time that oil was about to join cordwood and coal in the dustbin of history. It was a gross strategic miscalculation of the first water. So through those two absolute blunders, admitting China to the WTO and going to war in the greater Middle East, the United States 
began to spin into decline just as China was starting its rise. And by 2030, that process should play out. By 2030, China's economy will be, according to PricewaterhouseCoopers, will be 50% larger than the U.S. economy. And since the United States and China spend roughly 2 and 3% of their gross domestic product on, on their military over the long term, when China's economy is 50% bigger, its military budget will be correspondingly bigger, and they're very efficient in their procurements. By 2030, we won't be speaking of China as being a near-peer military competitor. We'll be talking about China as a military peer. And in a number of critical areas, China will have a more sophisticated, will have a more advanced military than we will. And if it were to come to a conflict, particularly off the coast of East Asia, even the Pentagon is convinced that we would lose. This is a work of history that you've produced, Professor McCoy, and I must say it's the first work of history I've ever encountered that includes a chronology that goes from 2024 to 2300. And you do that because you finish your book talking about climate change and the impact that that will have on the world order, and you speculate about the coming new world order. Rather than go into all of the exegesis of what we know about climate change and reasonable projections, please talk about what this coming new world order might include. First of all, let me explain how I did it, okay? Climate science is unique in that it's all about prediction. When you think about it, political science maybe will predict the outcome of the next election. Economists will maybe go as far out as the, the next financial crisis or the next bout of inflation. But climate scientists in all of their articles in the reputable journals like Nature, they all have projections about the level of climate change all the way to the end of the 21st century. And there's a debate about the range of possible changes, but they're all projecting. So all you have to do, and what I did in the book, was I simply took these quite scientific projections about the, the course of climate change for the rest of the century, and I overlaid on top of that the dynamics of global power to project the rise and decline of empires and world orders. And through that, what I came to the conclusion is that through a combination of China's rise, which is a major geopolitical shift, and the way that the climate change is already eroding the spirit of cooperation, which underlies Washington's world order. And through the two, I came to a projection that around 2030, U.S. global power would fade, Washington's world order would begin to weaken, and China would emerge sometime after 2030 as the world's great global hegemon and likely to bring a world order grounded not on principles of human rights, cooperation, international law, but on, on mutual advantage, ending much of the idealism of the current world order. Okay, so then the question is, how long is China's world order likely to last? Well, the environmental science is very clear on this. By 2050, which is only 30, you know, some years from now, Shanghai, which is a city of 18 million people and the most prosperous and powerful city in China, much of it will be underwater, including the downtown. As sea levels rise, Shanghai, which was dredged from sea and swamp back in the 15th century, will return to the waters from whence it came. And other coastal cities in China are going to suffer similar damage. And it's the coastal cities that are the real engines of China's industrialization and exports. But even more seriously, global warming is not just warming, it's in fact devastating heat as well. And a study done by a group of scientists led by a professor at MIT projected that by 2060 or 2070, and it's, it's not like a sudden arrival, it's kind of, we're building toward that, there will be hundreds of extreme weather events in the North China Plain. This is an area between Shanghai and Beijing that is the agriculture and industrial heartland of China, currently inhabited by about 400 million people. That's more than the population of the United States by far, okay, in this one area. And starting around 2060, 2070, this area of China is going to have at least five periods of what's called 35-degree centigrade wet bulb temperature. Now, what's that? That's when the balance of heat and humidity is such that the human body can no longer sweat. So that an adult in perfect health, sitting, not moving, 
will be dead in six hours. And this is going to ravage the North China Plain. So as China is faced with sinking cities and devastating heat waves, whatever world order it might have built, whatever international presence it might have, China will have to withdraw around 2050 from the world. And so for the first time in five or six centuries, there we will have a world without a world order. And another thing that's going to happen by 2050 is that the projections are that there will be between 200 million and 1.2 billion climate change refugees. So the world will be threatened for, with monumental disorder. And therefore, the world will be faced with the need for a new kind of global governance, a, a new kind of empowered world order like none that has ever come before that will need to address three critical issues. First of all, if any nation is still engaging in greenhouse gas emissions, they need to be sanctioned persuasively and effectively to stop. Second, there needs to be an empowered form of the UN High Commission for Refugees that will make refugee resettlement of the, that 200 million to 1.2 billion, that tide of humanity, not voluntary, but mandatory. And third and finally, the contributions, capital contributions, that we were talking about at the UN Conference of Glasgow, supposed to be $100 billion, that instead of being voluntary, those will become mandatory and be done at a level sufficient to prevent loss of life in the tropics and in order to make those fragile ecosystems battered by climate change as viable as possible so that the maximum number of people can remain in shelter in place and be spared from the travails of becoming refugees. And through these three small but very significant changes in national sovereignty, we can create a world order that will prevent the unimaginable violence, destruction, and death of global disorder that's likely to visit this planet by 2050. Well, Professor Alfred McCoy, there's so much more in your book to govern the globe, world orders, and catastrophic change. People will simply have to read it for themselves. Thank you for your decades of work and for joining us again on Forthright Radio. Thank you very much for having me. It's been, it's been really quite a conversation. You have just heard an interview with University of Wisconsin Harrington Professor of History, Alfred McCoy discussing his latest book, To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change, published by Haymarket Books. There is far, far more in this book than we were able to address. His synthesis of how change happens, born of catastrophe, and the imperative for a new world order to arise faster and with greater consciousness and intention than ever before in human history in the face of growing climate catastrophes merits serious and wide attention. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. You can also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews there at forthright.media. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.